giant robot smashing into other giant robots. This is the Giant Robots Smashing into Other Giant Robots podcast, where we explore the design, development, and business of great products. I'm your host, Chad Pytel, and with me today is Erica Windish, CTO and co-founder of IOPipe. Erica, thanks for joining me. Thank you for having me. So before we get too far into things, can you give people an idea of what IOPipe actually is? Sure. IOPipe is a tool for developers and operators to observe their serverless workloads, primarily running on Amazon Lambda, so that you can get uh, the most detailed insights into how your application is working, how your users are using it. And it's kind of a cross, I would say, between a modern observability product and a user monitoring product versus more traditional APM solutions. Yeah. So what inspired you to create IOPipe, which is different than existing application performance monitoring? So, I mean, my background came from being a systems administrator, you know, systems operator, you know, SRE, but also doing that from a DevOps mentality very early on. And then, you know, carrying that forward through my involvement in OpenStack, my involvement in Docker, where I was a maintainer. And I saw a lot of ways where we can improve the way that we monitor and observe workloads. And, you know, some of the things that I kind of always wished that we had an opportunity to do in some of those environments, you know, between OpenStack being a large system where there's a lot of things that can be monitored out of the box to Docker, where there were definitely artifacts that could have been captured and, you know, consumed effectively. And with serverless, you know, taking off early on, I said, okay, well, this is going to require unique solutions and is lacking a lot of these tools we have on other platforms. And it's a really great greenfield place for us to build upon. So I don't want to take it for granted that everyone who's listening actually knows what we mean when we say serverless. So you want to just clarify that? Sure. There's different definitions of serverless according Mm -hmm. to who you speak to, as well as ideas about the term itself. And for me, I think of serverless in the same way I think of a stateless. I mean, stateless is an architecture, like nothing is stateless, and yet we are okay with this term, yet we're not all okay with the term serverless. Right. It's like, no, there's servers involved. <laughs> right, there are servers involved. I think people get hung involved. up on that. <laughs> yeah, but, you know, there's also state involved in all stateless architectures, and, right. you know, we don't get hung up on it. So I think of serverless as stateless architecture for stateless applications. Mm-hmm. Because, well, first of all, serverless applications tend to be or, or are by default fully distributed. And this is one of the ways in which serverless is kind of challenging to develop to because it's very easy to say, I'm going to develop an ideally architected serverless application. And you realize, great, I've just not opted into every one of the hardest distributed systems problems. Right. And I think that one of the challenges of serverless, uh, but also, you know, the fact that it's stateless, right, is one of these distributed systems are easier when they're stateless versus trying to maintain, you know, state and quorum through, you know, clusters, for instance. So I have to admit, as a developer, I haven't built a truly serverless application like you might with AWS Lambda or something like that. So my perception of it, practically speaking, what it is, is, you know, you're breaking everything down to sort of a function level and you're running your functions in a distributed way. Is that accurate or inaccurate? Um, that's mostly accurate. So you, you break your application into individual functions, and those functions are shipped to, say, AWS or Google, Azure, and they are run per request 
billed to you by request. And each of those is basically given, you know, a fully scalable, autonomously operated infrastructure in order to operate on. I mean, it's very similar to, say, S3, for instance, where when you're putting your files in S3, you don't have to build and operate clusters of RAID disks, right? Mm -hmm. And you don't have to worry about scheduling writes to the correct desk and making sure that like you have enough IO operations per second per disk in order to access that file or object in the right place, right? You don't have to worry about like warm and cold storage, for instance. All of those things are handled automatically for you with S3. And Lambda and FAST, you know, functions as a service, provides that level of abstraction to your application code in the way that S3 does for storage. So as someone who hasn't done this before, are there times where it makes sense and doesn't make sense? Or do you believe that every application should be built this way? You know, I think my opinion on this has changed a little bit over time. I do think that a bit of a hybrid approach is definitely necessary today. I mean, it's hard for me to speculate like what it's going to be like in the future. I, I th- mm-hmm. do think that more applications will be able to be serverless in the future than is possible today. I don't know what percentage of applications that will be ultimately. You know, obviously the infrastructure that runs Lambda cannot be serverless because it's a chicken and egg problem. Right. So there's obviously going to be some applications that are not serverless, even if that is the serverless stack itself. But I think today applications that don't make as much sense are applications that are highly stateful that require deep levels of quorum between, you know, nodes and instances. Because, I mean, you're talking about an architecture where all of your resources are completely ephemeral and last, say, no more than 10 minutes at a time. So, you know, trying to establish a quorum between 10 hundreds, thousands of individual virtual machines, none of which are alive more than 10 minutes, like, is not the right place to implement a distributed consensus protocol. But that said, you know, there are other solutions, right? Well, maybe you need a distributed census protocol, you know, to run something like Cassandra or Zookeeper. Those things running on servers on EC2 or Fargate or physical machines or virtual machines on other clouds. That's where you maintain that state, um, not necessarily on the functions as a service platform. Mm-hmm. And then there's the whole the other side of, well, you know, what is serverless outside of functions as a service, right? So if you provide it, say, Zookeeper as a service, is that now suddenly serverless? And definitely some people will argue that it is. Right. But it becomes important to note that the service underneath is not serverless. It's serverless becomes the productized version of that non-serverless architecture. Right. So as someone who hasn't used IOPipe before, I'm going to put things in, in terms that I know I'm familiar with other APM solutions. And they basically, you know, they instrument and inject themselves into the application that's running so that they can do traces of everything that's going on and report on application performance. So IOPipe is doing that same thing, but within the individual serverless function, right? Uh, yeah, so we're doing the same thing. The application is being instrumented, primarily auto-instrumented, although there's mechanisms for manual instrumentation as well as needed by customers. So you, know, you, you import our library, you wrap your code, Actually, now there's options through Amazon Layers where you can do that without even changing your code. You can just, you know, we can do it on the Amazon side through external import tricks that they have hooks into their runtime. But, you know, that code gets instrumented 
And what we do is we collect data on every single invocation, you know, detailed granular information on the event sources and traces and so forth. One of the things about Lambda that's really compelling is that every function has a standardized definition for that function, right? Uh, yeah. is the, is the same. Like if it were C, it would be like a type def, right? Like right. serverless function. Those arguments, those parameters are always the same. And one of those is the event type or rather the event input, which is an object, initially JSON, which gets decoded into each language. And we're able to then say, well, this is an API gateway call. The event input looks the same for every API gateway call, you know, it's structured the same way. And we're able to take that and process that and turn it into structured logs while also giving the user's capability of having customized structured logs. And then we collect all of it and we store all of that data. None of it is aggregated on write. Everything is aggregated on read. So a lot of those traditional APM products, what they're looking at doing is improving performance. And that's done primarily through aggregate performance. Data is collected and aggregated on write so that trends can be detected and you can solve problems mostly from an aggregate level through that right level aggregations. And what we do is by doing read level aggregations, we store all that data, give you more granular detail, allow you to dive in deep and see individual HTTP requests that are processed by your application, individual Lambda invocations, and really dive in really deep, really detailed. And then we still do things like traces and so forth. I think one of the major differences between what we're doing and traditional APM is doing, we really don't care too much about performance. Performance is not really a major problem that we're seeing that users are running into with serverless mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. because the architecture, you know, has infinite compute capacity. Right. With the exception of applications that are latency sensitive, performance is not really a consideration for any user that's doing things like in batch or bulk, for instance, like off Kinesis, as long as you can keep that processing under a second, for instance, you're good. That's a perfect example where, say, once you start going over a second for processing, your application will still work, but you're going to require more Kinesis shards, which is going to increase the operational burden and the pricing for what you're paying to Amazon. So that's a place where maybe you would want to optimize. But for the majority of use cases and customers, we found that they really aren't terribly concerned about that performance optimization and are far more interested in doing things like saying, this HTTP request, it failed the process on our side and this request was made on behalf of this user and they were submitting this order and now you can you know you have a full story of a user interaction and how that related to your architecture and your infrastructure and i think that is a bigger selling point for io pipe than performance that's cool did you identify that before or after getting started with IOPipe? <laughs> I think we identified that after getting started yeah. with IOPipe, actually. Like a lot of products, you know, we really worked on trying to find what was, you know, product market fit and trying mm-hmm. to find what customers really need it. And it turned out like, oh, performance is not really a terribly interesting thing for these users. When I started IOPipe, I actually had a little bit of a, a more radical idea. And IOPipe is used for this in in some ways, which is just general debugging. But I had thought that, well, you know, if we get to a point where code is written by machine learning, right, if code is informed or written by machine processes, whether fully automatically or, you know, partially, you know, assisted development, if a computer writes code, how does it know that that code worked unless it can test it and debug it, right? Just the same way that humans need to test and debug their code. So I said, well, 
I want a tool that can be fully self-automated and used by things like IntelliSense-type products in the future to say, I wrote code, how does it work? And get that feedback and do all of that, you know, in a fully automatic way, fully automated, where even machines could write code and use this platform <laughs> to debug themselves. I imagine that you're not quite there yet. We're not quite there yet. We, we don't do code generation stuff. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's no reason that we couldn't interface with a system built, you know, with a code generation system like that. We just don't have it. We actually had a prototype uh, when we first started IOPipe, and it turned out that, you know, developers like writing code. Uh, they're less interested in assistance right. in writing that code. I mean, I think tools that can help them manually debug it are of a higher priority than tools that can help them automatically debug it. And I think we'll get to that point maybe later. But, you know, hitting the more critical aspects of how do developers that are manually writing code can debug this is a far more important thing than helping them with a process they don't currently have. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I know that you did Techstars with IOPipe, and I want to explore that more and the the process of, you know, getting started and where you are today. But I'm hoping that we can take a step back first and go sort of back to when you were getting started as a system administrator and talk about how things have changed to get us where we are today with all the way to serverless because things are very different than they used to be. Absolutely. So when I first started out, it was 2001 and I was working at a small hosting company up in Scranton, Pennsylvania, and I was making basically nothing. Um, I mean, the market had just crashed. Uh, it was my first job. I hadn't graduated from college. And, you know, I got hired as a system administrator. And, and it was actually really interesting because, you know, the, the people I was working with were also, you know, have gained their own theme within this industry. You know, Brad Spengler of um, GR Security and Nick Costin of cPanel uh, were both my coworkers at the time. And they were both actually working on their projects already. Uh, GR Security was a thing um, and cPanel was a thing. And I got to see you know, really closely, you know, the security product and, you know, this web hosting control panel, both of which became themes for my own career, because mm-hmm. I ended up running security at Docker, uh, where I built out all the security processes and run books. And at the time, web hosting was primarily done through cPanel and cPanel-like providers. But one of the main themes was primarily, you know, static web hosting, PHP, which was still pretty new at the time, Perl, which was already starting to see its way out, and Java, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, Which was primarily, I mean, again, this is 2001, so um, there was Tomcat at the time, JBoss was just coming around the corner, and I kind of stood back, and I, I was actually, especially through Tomcat, I was inspired to say, well... How can we do hosting for things like Tomcat? Because it requires its own process. Right. I mean, you, you could run multiple users on a single process, become, but then it becomes brittle. And I mean, there were lots of issues, especially early on. And I said, well, how can we solve this to run Tomcat for individual users? And, you know, the idea of using containers, you know, was basically there. And I left that company and, and started up my own. And we were doing containers. And this is 2002, 2003. They were running Tomcat. Mob Pearl. Every user got their own in- install of Apache. So, like, if you're using PHP, yes, you could run PHP in you know a shared mode where everybody runs as the web user. But mm-hmm. I mean, there's major security issues with this, and I was like, this doesn't work. Like, you should not be doing it this way. That's how it was <laughs> when you first started because Zen wasn't officially released until 2004. 
So back in 2001, everything was just everyone got a home directory on those servers. You, you were managing, what, 700 servers or something like that. And all the individual applications all just got home directories on the servers. Is that right? No, that's exactly what the case was. Mm -hmm. And so what I did was, you know, I did kind of a in-between container solution where users got their own home directories, but they only, they had basically their own container within their home directory. It didn't run as a Linux container because Linux container subsystems didn't exist. Mm -hmm. But, you know, you got the same security benefits of user namespaces with this setup that as you did with containers, with the exception of, you know, the ease of portability and bringing your own operating system and runtime was a much, much harder, which is why when I ran into Simon Hikes or uh, Solomon, in 2009, and he gave me a demo of this tool he was developing, I was like, you need to turn this into a project, an open source project. However, <laughs> um, <laughs> it's way too hard to use and install. And keep in mind, this is 2009. Right. <laughs> we'll see if we'll get him to respond to this. But like, I actually had suggested to him at the time that maybe he should build a platform as a service. <laughs> so <laughs> .NET was created. And then later on, when he showed me basically that same tool rewritten to be more user-friendly as Docker in 2013, um, I was like, yes, I, this is awesome. This is kind of the thing I wanted to see, you know, yep. three, four years before. So I, I ended up joining Docker fairly early. <laughs> yeah. But back to like the hosting stuff, we ended up um, switching over, well, not switching over entirely. We ended up doing that home directory-based container solution and then add it. Zen support in 2006 and then started doing virtual machines. So this is where I was like, okay, I, I gave users the ability to do self-service and manage their whole operating system and everything. And it turned out developers wanted to write code and they didn't know how to manage operating systems. So, you know, we had these two really strongly opposed like magnetic forces, right? One was a platform where everything was set up and working for the user and they could just ship their code to it, whether or not it was Rails or Tomcat or Mod Pearl or PHP, but it was oh my god, it was such a horrible thing for us to maintain as a company because every time there's a new platform or framework or whatever, it was a whole engineering process to support that new thing. And then you know, users' preferences would change. You know, Ruby developers would one day be happy with Mod Ruby, and the next right, day right. they wanted Mongrel, and then the, you know, the next day after that they wanted Light HTTPD, and it was like. You know, what you really want, right, is the ability to choose and right. have self-service. So, so here are virtual machines. And then they said, I don't know how to operate Linux. Right. <laughs> right. Right. So when it was time for me to exit that company, I ended up working in OpenStack to basically take those lessons that I learned from building a cloud and building these services and all this, you know, hosting automation and to deliver that to other users. And then eventually then left, you know, the OpenStack ecosystem for Docker where I was able to basically continue that progression of technology and say, mm -hmm. okay, here are all the problems I had with that first company. I get to still solve those problems. You know, I'm just doing it, you know, maybe for a larger audience via OpenStack and via Docker. From my perspective, where we sit now, I have a theory, <laughs> which is when you look back, ending up where we are with serverless, the logical progression makes perfect sense because you know, you start with, we have bare metal servers, just running Linux, everything is just there and we have our applications and they're written in Perl or PHP or whatever and all the state, everything is just on that box. I'm responsible for everything. And then we get virtual private machines and containerization. And then eventually Docker. 
And then we just keep on going up the stack from there. It sort of seems like a logical progression to end up at the point where it's no longer even about the application itself, but even the functions within our application are sort of containerized at that point. I agree. I, I think the the interesting thing is like what is above and beyond serverless, right? And, oh, well, that's and- where I was going. I was like, I'm not even sure that someone looking forward in 2001, how you would have predicted where we would end up today, it would have required a lot of foresight. But yeah, what's next? Well, I I think this idea of like automatic code generation, testing development is possibly going to be a theme. Like low code solutions have Mm -hmm. been, you know, kind of on the radar for the longest time. But Again, one of the reasons I built IO Pipe was because I identified, well, one of the reasons that doesn't really work terribly well in practice is that if you have a low-code solution, it needs to know if it's working or not. Like, you need to have success criteria. <laughs> right. So you need to have a, a platform which is granular enough and fast enough, real-time enough for all of that to really work and make sense. So I think that is a possible trend. I think also, you know, solutions such as Netlify and AWS's Amplify service provide, you know, a user experience that is higher level and more wrapped up. Lambda is almost like a web server technology and something like Amplify or Netlify kind of become a web hosting solution. And I think that we'll probably see more development, you know, moving to, you know, those higher level services that are built on top. Although I don't think that's an end game. Like, I don't think that's like, oh, that's where the technology is heading. I think that this technology generation will become more mainstream. I don't think that is necessarily a next generation. I think it's just kind of a practization Mm -hmm. of it. Where are we actually at in the industry with automatic code generation? Where is the sort of attainable but state-of-the-art? You know, I think you'll hear different things from Mm -hmm. a lot of different people because I've heard a lot of people very skeptical of that's not possible. We won't be able to do that for the longest time. You know, mostly talking to what I would consider like your average backend or full stack engineer. However, there's a lot of really amazing research that's being done. And there are some companies that have done some really amazing things with code generation and, you know, machine learning that just haven't really exposed that as open source. You haven't exposed it in anything but a very practiced version. You know, some of the developers of the original Siri application ended up creating a startup where my understanding was that they were basically looking at doing code generation as part of a machine learning, or rather a voice interface to machine learning and code generation. So when you ask your voice assistant to do something, if it has enough primitives, right, it can combine these things and do that task. Mm-hmm. And I understand that there was some work done on this, but then, you know, it was never actually released as a product. And I suspect they eventually ran out of money. I'm, I'm not quite sure what happened to them. So I do think that the technology kind of exists at this point. It's not necessarily at a place where it's easily turned into a product. You know, we had you know, our own prototypes, which I think, you know, were compelling. But again, uh, it comes down to, I don't think know that it could be fully automated. I do think we are at a point where we could definitely be partially automated. You know, like a really good IntelliSense could be made at this point. But I do think that to do that correctly or to do it effectively, you would need, you know, observability tools connected Mm -hmm. into it. And the platforms that do exist and have been successful to date, 
I think our systems that did integrate monitoring, you know, they just weren't productized, right? So, you know, again, like, you know, your voice assistants, you know, they're run as platform as a service or SaaS products. So all that monitoring and feedback loop, right? All that recurrent re-entrant learning and everything or re- the reinforcement mm-hmm. machine learning is all done internally, right? It's, it's part, of the part of the product. And I think these are complex enough systems that they're not like, oh, you can download this and then just use it, right? This right. becomes, you know, a very large, complex system that becomes a product that's right. a hosted service because, you know, kind of like with Docker and .cloud, the technology is not yet there where you can just download it and run it in your server. It's at the point, like with .cloud, where this technology is amazing, but you're going to have to run this as a hosted solution because there's no way we can hand it to you and have you self-operate this in any way yet mm-hmm. currently. So it's interesting how the patterns in our industry kind of just repeat themselves over and over. It's one of the most frustrating things <laughs> about being in this industry for, you know, 17 whatever years. Yeah, Well, we're building up the layers of the stack, too. So at each layer, you sort of have to go through the same process again. Exactly. But you end up (laughs) one higher level. Now, when we do get to the point where we have automatic code generation, maybe that'll go away because then the computers will just write everything for us. (laughs) (laughs) So that, I think, brings us back to IL Pipe. So you were getting started with IL Pipe. What was the founding team like? Yeah, so the founding team is Adam Johnson and myself. Mm-hmm. Adam and I met on a project in Korea that we were working for some companies in Korea that were looking at building out their own clouds to compete with some of the Western clouds that were, well, were, are present. So we met then, both of us had a tenure in OpenStack. And mm-hmm. uh, when I went to Docker, Adam stayed working on OpenStack and networking technologies and when I left Docker, I sent him a message and that was pretty much it. And then, and then we got into Techstars New York 2016. Did you have a product when you got into Techstars or just the idea? So I had code for the code generation stuff, mm-hmm. you know, like the whole low code, self-generating code thing in progress. I was like, we can do it. We just need the team and we need the money. We have a proof of concept. And then we started talking to users and figuring out like, okay, well, we need to monitor this. We need to have the feedback loop. And it was like, well, that's a product, right? Like right. that alone is a product. And it turns out there are users who want this product today who who knows if they're going to want code generation stuff. So right. we ended up narrowing our focus on a part of that platform rather than the full expanded vision. Mm-hmm. And that happened while you were in Techstars? That happened a week or two into Techstars. Mm-hmm. Monitoring was on our board. We had a prototype for the monitoring as well. And we actually did a Wardley map. And I said, you know, according to this Wardley map, I think we should just do monitoring. I've never heard of that before. What What is that? So a Wardley map is this tool created by Simon Lordley. Um, he's a researcher out of the UK. And he calls it a value mapping chain where you create this rough chart of where you think the different technologies or things lie on two axes. And that is from, you know, custom implementation through commodity, right? Mm-hmm. And then on the other side is the value of that thing. You know, the y-axis is low value to high value. So you can build something internally that is fully custom and just for your organization that is maybe, say, low value or high value, Right. And that would be maybe on the upper left or lower left of that map. But then you have things that are, say, commodity. So like Lambda makes the ability to ship and run code a commodity. However, then the question is, well, is monitoring a commodity and is monitoring becoming a commodity? Right. 
from the transition from virtual machines to Lambda, for instance, you would have, say, Lambda is a commodity, but EC2 is a commodity of that underlying resource. However, the customization and the operations and the management of that EC2 instance is not a commodity, right? That all of that is custom work that needs to be done. Mm-hmm. And so much of that work is being pushed into a commodity with Lambda, right? Because those things are taken away and the ease of use is, is then there. So you can then, you know, not just map where each point is, but you can map where things are moving and how technology is shifting. So you can kind of visualize some of these, you know, changes and trends in technology and saying, this is where the puck is moving and ideally getting in front of the puck a little bit. Mm-hmm. So in this case, we use that tool and said, hey, I think that monitoring is the part here that's actually valuable. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because even if we built this code generation thing, not only do we maybe not even have a market for it, but even if it was highly popular, kind of like Docker, it might be really hard to make money on it, right? Because it turned out like Docker was a really popular idea, but it was not a thing that was easy to make money on. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. So that helped you identify that, okay, maybe this monitoring thing is where we should spend our time right now because it's the right combination of opportunity and value and ease of implementation at the right time. Exactly. Cool. And so how quickly were you able to go from that realization to, okay, we've got a product here? (laughs) Did it happen within Techstars? Yeah. So we had already been talking to Lambda users and trying to figure out what they wanted. And monitoring was one of the things they had been saying. So we expected there was already some room there and it was probably our product direction. We already had a prototype. So we put that in front of a user, had them experiment with it, did a really rough MVP. Like at first you couldn't log into a console and like go through graphs and charts. There was no single pane of glass or search or anything. There was simply an email once a day that you got with like a snapshot of what happened Mm -hmm. that day with your metrics (laughs) because it was easy for us you know we had access to data so we just said we can just send you emails (laughs) that's a great compromise for an initial version i think yeah and that was one of the great things about TechStars was it was really good at helping us narrow down product focus and also helping us identify what an mvp looked like and you know where we could cut corners to put experiments in front of users quickly that maybe, you know, we're not the thing that we are going to ship and productize ultimately, right? Like, you know, mm-hmm. we threw away this whole email system pretty quickly, but it was enough for us to gauge if we should keep going down this path. So you get to the end of Techstars and full disclosure, I mentor every once in a while at Techstars in Boston. So I have some insight into what Techstars is like, and I know it's very intensive for the teams that are in it. <laughs> you have demo day at the end and a significant part of Techstars is even just preparing and rehearsing and getting ready for that pitch demo at the end. Was that a harrowing experience? So I think that it worked in our favor that Adam and I, you know, really divided a lot of, you know, the energy. Like I focused primarily on engineering between building things and managing things on like the daily basis versus Adam was doing all of, you know, most of the Techstars program, really, Mm. going to the meetings, you know, having 
um, those conversations. I was involved in those and I would go to some of the meetings and things, but we would discuss before he went into a meeting. So we'd be on the same page right. for whatever he was going to discuss. And I just had a lot of trust in him. So my time wasn't consumed necessarily to the same degree. That way I could focus on some of those engineering challenges. Mm-hmm. You know, we had one of the smaller teams in Techstars and we started with less product mm-hmm. when we joined. But we also raised the most in our class. <laughs> so, <laughs> Congratulations. Thank you. <laughs> so I think we did well with Techstars. Like, I, I think that part of it was the program, and I think part of it was us yeah. and how we utilized the program. Yeah, I know some teams go into Techstars and don't accomplish as much as they were hoping to. One, because their ambitions were very large, but also probably because they don't have their working relationships ironed out beforehand, and they don't divide the work in a smart way. They try to do everything together as a team, perhaps, and then end up not taking advantage of the time as much as they might otherwise. Yeah. And for me, I was on the train for almost three hours a day. (laughs) You were coming from Pennsylvania then. I was. I was commuting every day from Pennsylvania. That's (laughs) craziness. At the time, I was actually living outside Trenton, so it wasn't fully from Philadelphia. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I was taking Amtrak from Trenton up to Penn Station and then the walk every day. I actually, uh, you know, maybe I shouldn't admit this, but uh, I think I got some PTSD from the experience. And uh, it's actually very difficult for me to go back to uh, Manhattan now. Um, It's something I actively avoid. Right. (laughs) So speaking of which, I would jump around a little bit, but neither of you and most of the rest of the team is also not in New York City now. So you've grown since then. How, how big are you since 2016? I don't have a, the headcount in front mm-hmm. of me, but I think it's approximately 10, maybe a little more. Yeah. Um, I started this journey three years ago, personally. Mm-hmm. You know, the company is about two and a half years old. I started about six months before we got into Techstars. And, you know, in that process, I was doing things like finding Adam and trying to figure out what the idea was. But for me, this has been a three-year journey. And in that time, you know, we we have had some turnover. It's really hard, you know, building a company is also its own challenge. Yeah. You know, separate than all the technology and the product. And you don't just have to get the product right. And you don't have to get the timing right. You don't just have product market fit. You also need to build a team and you need to make all of those things work. And that's been, I shouldn't say surprisingly challenging, but... I think a lot of people underestimate it. I think it's okay to use the word surprisingly. (laughs) (laughs) What was surprising to me was that, you know, we've been a very diverse company and we've had a really good track record with, you know, having a large number of women and underrepresented minorities at our company. And yet it turns out like we still have to work on it. Like, you know, it's not automatic. Like just because we are a diverse company doesn't mean that we don't have diversity challenges. Um, mm-hmm. And that was actually the thing that really surprised me the best. Hmm. Yeah. And you are a distributed team? We are. Is that an intentional choice or did it sort of just happen? Yes. <laughs> I mean, Adam is in Seattle, so our founders are not in one place. Mm-hmm. So that very quickly made it clear that we probably should be fully distributed. And Adam and I had both worked on distributed teams before or had been remote employees before. So this was not new to either of us. And we both had opinions about it, uh, one of which was that we should either be co-located all in one place or we should be fully distributed and we shouldn't have something in the middle. Right. And I think that was a really excellent decision. I've had bad experiences with hybrid teams mm-hmm. where it was like, you know, decentralized teams 
where you have like different pockets in different areas and maybe like you're just an individual contributor that is in Pennsylvania and the rest of the team is in San Francisco or, you know, there's like five teams, but like you're still the one person in Pennsylvania. And that did not work well for me, honestly. Yeah. And I've interviewed a number of people coming in knowing this is, you know, a distributed team and saying they're looking for a distributed team and specifically do not want to be remote for a team that is not fully distributed for these reasons. So I'm curious, from your perspective, being a distributed team, are there any particular challenges or benefits when it comes to issues of diversity and inclusion or having a diverse and inclusive team? It's actually interesting. I wouldn't say it's so many challenges. Mm -hmm. So we do do some um, all hands, you know, every so often, like we'll do an offsite or an onsite or whatever you want to call it. Because it's ironic because like when your team is fully distributed, it kind of becomes an onsite, not really an offsite. But we did have some issues where we had employees who had accessibility concerns that were never voiced because we were fully distributed. So they didn't have any accessibility requirements working distributed. But then when we had everybody in a room, it turned out that there were accessibility concerns we had to solve. It's not really been a major issue, but it was definitely something that kind of hit us by surprise. We're like, oh, we weren't expecting that we wouldn't know about these accessibility issues until, but also one of the great things- But that's great. I mean, it means that you're creating a kind of inclusive environment that is very accessible to people. Exactly. And we actually had found that we had employees with accessibility concerns that they were not concerns because we were distributed, right? That- we eliminated at least part of that problem for them. Right. That was eye-opening. Like we, That was not something we expected that like we would be an accessible company by being distributed. Yeah. It was a very pleasant surprise to find that that was the case. Yeah, that's great. I was excited to hear all about the journey that you've been on and I wish you the best of luck with IO Pipe. If people want to follow along with you or find out more information about the product, the company, you, where's the best places for them to do that? Our company website is iopipe.com. Mm-hmm. There is no S. Um, <laughs> there yeah. is, we have a- Your Twitter handle has an S in it though. Our Twitter handle has an S. So it's iopipes with an S uh, because we couldn't get it without the S. One of the mistakes you make along the way. Um, <laughs> and I personally am E Windish. That's E W I N D I S C H at Twitter. I tweet about a lot of things, not just technology. So, you know, be mindful of that. <laughs> and if anybody does sign up for the account and do trial at IO Pipe, uh, we also have a Slack community. And I think when you sign up, you get information about the Slack community. You can always join there and talk with our team and get engaged with us and our community. It's not just we're a company and selling yep. a thing like we are, but there's there's a community and you know we have a Slack channel. And we want you know to make sure that we get engaged with people and that our users get engaged with each other to make the best use of the tool. Wonderful. You can find notes and links to everything that Erica just mentioned for this episode at giantrobots.fm. And you can subscribe to the show there as well. If you have questions or comments, email us at hosts at giantrobots.fm. And you can find me on Twitter at cpytel. This podcast is brought to you by ThoughtBot and produced and edited by Tom Obarski. Thanks for listening and see you next time. This podcast was brought to you by ThoughtBot. We are experienced designers and developers who turn your idea into the right product. With local studios in Boston, San Francisco, New York, London, Austin, and Raleigh, let's build something great together.